Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Ruth Asawa. My first guest, Tamara Schenkenberg, is the curator of Ruth Asawa, Life's Work at the Pulitzer Arts Foundation in St. Louis. Asawa was a San Francisco-based artist who melded traditional craft practices with industrial materials such as wire to make some of the most distinctive sculpture of the 20th century. Schenkenberg's exhibition includes 80 works, including sculpture, works on paper, and collages spanning Asawa's career from its start at Black Mountain College in Western North Carolina through the intricate and complicated ceiling-hanging works of her later years. It's the first museum exhibition of Asawa's work in a dozen years and the first ever away from the West Coast. It's on view until February 16th, 2019. A catalog is forthcoming from Yale University Press. You can pre-order it from manpodcast.com. My second guest from The Unheroic Act, Representations of Rape in Contemporary Women's Art in the U.S. at the Shiva Gallery at John Jay College is Angela Fraley. But first, Tamara Schenkenberg, after the break. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Adrian Piper, Concepts and Intuitions, 1965-2016. to the first West Coast Museum exhibition of the artist's work in more than a decade, this is a rare opportunity to experience Adrian Piper's provocative and wide-ranging artwork, which directly addresses gender, race, xenophobia, social engagement, and self-transcendence. Also on view at the Hammer, Stones to Stains, the drawings of Victor Hugo. Featuring over 75 drawings and photographs from major European and American collections, this landmark exhibition reconsiders Hugo's experimental and enigmatic practice as a visual artist for a new generation of audiences in America. Exhibition details at hammer.ucla.edu. Hammer Museum, free for good. Judson Dance Theater, The Work is Never Done, is now on view at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan, including weekly performances in the Marin Atrium. Through live performance, film, photographs, music, poetry, archival material, and more, Judson Dance Theater, The Work Is Never Done, explores how a group of downtown artists reinvented modern dance. Get more info and the full schedule at MoMA.org. The Guggenheim Museum in New York presents One Hand Clapping, an exhibition exploring our changing relationship with the future. On view through October 21st, One Hand Clapping features commissioned work in a range of traditional and new mediums by five artists, Sao Fei, Duan Zhan Yu, Lin Yilin, Wang Ping, and Samson Young. From paintings to mixed media installations to a virtual reality experience featuring the likeness of basketball star Jeremy Lin, these works challenge visions of a global, homogenous, and technocratic future. One Hand Clapping is the final exhibition of the Robert H. N. Ho Family Foundation Chinese Art Initiative, which offers a platform for artistic experimentation that responds to urgent issues of our time. Learn more at guggenheim.org slash onehandclapping. And we're back. Tamara Schenkenberg, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks for having me. As a native Californian myself and as someone who grew up seeing Ruth Asawa's work a lot as a kid and as a teenager and, and as I got older, and of course, despite many decades of airline travel connecting the East Coast and the West, I'm always flabbergasted by the way Ruth Asawa's work seems to have been suddenly noticed by non-Californians in the last few years after it had been extremely well-known in California for decades. So what happened? Why, why is Ruth Asawa back? Well, like you said, you know, she has been a local hero and an artist of quite a renown in the Bay Area. So she's never really been gone. It's just that we're now catching up to all the things that you've known for many, many decades, which is that she's an astonishing artist. And, you know, in working on this show, I've definitely heard stories like yours, you know, people who've grown up in a Bay Area and who know and love Ruth Asawa's work, and then people like me who are not of that region and who just didn't know of, you know, many, many decades of innovation in sculpture and drawing and other art forms. And so, you know, she's not a neglected figure in art history, but she's certainly an artist who for many decades has been underrecognized. I guess two things must have helped. One the extraordinary and much admired Helen Molesworth, Ruth Erickson show on Black Mountain College that traveled pretty widely across the country, and then the art market founder. 
Yeah, I, th I think both those things are true. And just, you know, for me personally, it was that show organized by Helen Molesworth and Ruth Erickson that, you know, made me, that introduced me really to Ruth Asawa's work. In 2015, I saw their presentation at ICA Boston and I thought I'd heard the name Ruth Asawa, but, you know, in, in reality, I really did not know her work. And I was just really astonished when I saw it. I was intrigued by it. I wanted to know more. And so that, that certainly was the starting point for this project at the Pulitzer. Before we get into Asawa's work, I should mention that Helen Molesworth will be in the forthcoming catalog for your show. Her essay is pointedly titled, in, in quotes, and the quotes are in Molesworth's title, San Francisco Housewife and Mother. Which comes out of a sort of now an infamous review on Ruth Asawa. So it's, it's quite a provocation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's Molesworthian and extremis. No, it was, it was nice to, to kind of come full circle in that sense to, to kind of have her show as a starting point for this project and also then to, you know, have her as a contributor to the essay. It shows her commitment to sort of thinking about Ruth Asawa and her work. And it's a really good essay. So we'll, we'll have a link on manpodcast.com to where you can pre-order the, the catalog. So let's, let's start with Asawa's work just a teeny bit before your, your show opens in the mid to late 1940s. This is a period when Asawa is mostly making figurative or representational work, paintings, drawings. There are some 1947 drawings she made that are quite Aegon Sheila-like, in fact. So what changed? What pointed her from becoming kind of a recognizable two-dimensional artist to doing something as enormously new as she ended up doing. Yeah, and I think maybe just one thing to also say is that I don't know that anything tremendously changed because if you look at those early drawings, paintings, and collages, you see her really being drawn to investigating sort of issues pertaining to weight and volume, light and shadow, transparency, but the change from 2D to 3D happened as a result of a trip to Mexico in 1947. She went on a volunteer trip to teach children how to draw. She always had this interest in art education. And so while in Toluca, she sees uh, wire baskets in local markets that were designed to hold eggs, among other things. And she becomes fascinated with these objects. And in the course of this trip, a local craftsman teaches her this technique, this sort of technique based on knitting uh, that it went into making these baskets. And prior to this moment at Black Mountain College, she had only been taking classes in painting and drawing and design primarily. And she comes back from Mexico and she has this renewed or newfound interest, I should say, in object making. And at first she's making these utilitarian baskets. She's replicating the forms that she saw in Mexico. And then, you know, the work takes off into a different direction at the end of that decade. So that, that was the big change. It was this trip, trip to Mexico in the summer of 47. Toluca, Mexico is in central Mexico, about 30 miles west of, of Mexico City. So those forms that, 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 that are now so famous, those, those looped wire forms, your exhibition starts with some biomorphic forms that Asawa makes with paper and on plywood. And there are a number of, of drawings, paintings on paper that Asawa makes in, in the mid to late 40s, the play with biomorphic forms. So I have a couple questions about those. First, do you think she is translating these biomorphic forms into three dimensions via what she learned and saw in Toluca? Is that where those forms come from? When she speaks about those biomorphic forms, she almost always traces them back to her childhood. She There's a quote where she says, you know, we used to make patterns in the dirt, hanging our feet off the horse-drawn farm equipment. And, you know, she and her siblings would, and she particularly would make these endless hourglass sort of forms with their feet. And she sees those repeated in her looped wire sculptures. You know, she, she grew up on a farm during the Great Depression to this immigrant family. They worked long hours. And it was that, that connection to nature 
that she cited as a lifelong source of inspiration. And so I would be, you know, I, I, I think I would always want to go back to what she says and sort of cite the farm and her relationship to nature as a source for those biomorphic forms. And trees and plants and leaves stay in her drawings really all her life, pretty darn near. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's, it's both the forms found in nature, but it's also the work that she did on the farm. So, for example, all the menial tasks of sort of sorting and planting and harvesting, she talks about how one of her jobs as a child was to string beans up and down poles, up and down these trellises, you know, and it was this repetitive motion of stringing something up and down, the monotony of that, that she also speaks about in relationship to her sculpture. Because, of course, the, the production of sculpture requires you to create a series of loops. So it's a loop after loop after loop. There's something sort of repetitive and monotonous that comes out of that farm work. So it's both the forms she sees in nature but it's also the task and the, the work, the labor itself, that becomes sort of foundational to her work as an artist. The other thing I wanted to ask about these biomorphic forms that she's playing with in two dimensions is that she often drop shadows the forms. She gives these biomorphic forms depth. This is counter to everything every other American artist is doing in the 1940s. American artists are certainly playing with biomorphic forms, as, as were European artists. That's where the Americans got it. But they're flat in, 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 in other artists' work, and they, they, they float in space, such as in Gorky's work. Any idea why she drops shadows them, why she adds depth, what, where that interest in depth when everybody else is going flat, flat, flat comes from? Yeah, that's such a good question. I can just sort of guess and say that, you know, even though she's not trained in sculpture and she takes all these classes and painting and drawing, I think she has these interests in weight and volume and in sculpture. So more than that, I don't know. I don't know how to answer your question. Yeah, maybe there isn't one. So you mentioned Asawa's 1947 trip to Toluca, Mexico, and that she learned from a craftsman this basket weaving technique that she migrates to wire. How does she migrate it to wire? Why does she migrate it to wire? So interestingly, the, the those baskets were made in wire. So that was something that was already sort of predetermined for her. And she was specifically drawn to that because wire was linear. You know, it, it, it was very familiar because of her training and drawing. And she felt that, you know, the, the work that she was created was, you know, the famous phrase, the drawing in space. So it didn't it didn't require a lot of adjustments to move from 2D to 3D for her in that sense. Maybe I should just take this opportunity to just say that weaving is, I've learned, not the most appropriate term to use in describing these looped wire sculptures, but knitting is. And so it is a craft-based method that she's adopting, but it's not weaving, it's knitting. And to make it more, even more complicated, she herself used the word crocheting, but just over the course of researching the exhibition, that's been something that has emerged that seems important to just note that sort of the starting point from her, for her was this technique that was based on knitting, and knitting with wire that she then sort of translates into sculpture in the late 1940s. Your essay in the forthcoming catalog notes over and over how important the labor of Asawa's labor in, in having her hands on the wire and what she does with it, how that's important to her. Can you lay that out and, and, and not only why that was important, but why it stays important to her for, for 30 years? Yeah, I, again, it comes out of that foundational experience of working on the farm. And it was that sense of, of, of working with the soil, working with nature, being hands-on and seeing how much transformation can be done by just the mere work of the hand that, that just stays with her and that she continues to believe in as, as a starting point and as a catalyst for her, for her work. So working on a farm is one aspect of it. The other one is just working with Joseph Albers, 
and the various exercises he made his students do in order to um, have this sort of hands-on learning, the practical kind of methodology that is meant to stimulate the student's power of observation, but also improve their sense of motor control, that, that all goes into into setting her up for, you know, in, in maintaining a practice that's very much based on hands, hands-on learning and execution. It's probably worth underscoring again how important Black Mountain was to her. Uh, Black Mountain was essentially uh, more or less on a farm. So it extended that childhood experience. She met her husband, Albert Lanier, who, who, who became a San Francisco architect at Black Mountain. Their Asawa's wedding ring was made by Bucky Fuller? Yes. <laughs> and Annie Albers made her wedding dress? Am I getting that right? Am I remembering that right? sure about the wedding dress. I, I, w- I want to look that up now. But yeah, certainly Bucky Fuller made the wedding ring. He was a student. He was a teacher there. But they became lifelong friends. And actually, one of the works in the exhibition was a sculpture that she specifically made for Buckminster Fuller. And yeah, they had this they had this ongoing relationship. And, you know, yes, Black Mountain College was extremely important to Asawa. And it's astonishing the degree to which there was an overlap between her life on the farm and Black Mountain College, because they were both, you know, in rural settings, both premised on the values of labor and community. And, you know, she just, I think because of that, in many ways, flourished there and thrived there for so many years. I I mentioned Albert Lanier a moment ago. And at the beginning of the show, we talked about how how, how thoroughly well-known and a part of the West Coast art world Asawa was. It was Lanier who was a particular activist around the conservation of the Guitardo Piazzoni murals that are now, you know, that had been in San Francisco's library on Civic Center, the building that is now the Asian Art Museum. Those murals are now at the De Young Museum where they were conserved and installed for the opening of the museum. And of course, you know, 30 steps away, there is an installation of Asawa's work that the de Young argues is, is, is permanent and intentional. And, and, and then Lanier, in some of the work we'll talk about a little later, he, he kind of handled the architectural designs for some of her public sculptures. So, or the architectural intervention that, 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 that her sculptures sat in. A really wonderful personal and a creative partnership. Yeah, no, I think we'll I think we'll probably get to that one one, one or two more times, especially in in when we talk about how Asawa worked and where she worked. So, so to shift gears back into Asawa's sculptures, they famously hang. Where did she get the idea for them to hang from above? I think that was just a process of evolution. Like I said, for a number of years, she's reproducing these open basket forms that she sees in Mexico. And then there's a turning point in 1949 where she continues to loop beyond that opening to create a self-enclosed form. And once she does that, you know, the last loop becomes the hanging point so that, you know, her condition, the condition of her sculpture changes from sitting on a, on a pedestal to being suspended in the air. And that sort of, you know, sets her, sets her apart from prevailing notions of sculpture, you know, all of a sudden... She's made something that is both two-dimensional line, but also a three-dimensional object. It's voluminous, but light. It, it's both self-enclosed and open, you know. So in many ways, it's a, it's, a, it's a starting point that is very innovative in and of itself, especially for the time. Yeah. I mean, one, if, if one of the innovations of, of, of kind of the big male minimalism era is that it takes sculpture off the plinth off a platform and puts it on the floor and that's in the early 60s then isn't taking sculpture off of a plinth off of a platform and hanging it from above a decade earlier a bigger innovation (laughs) i mean that's that's the argument that i'm making and yeah I, i certainly think that that she's contributed greatly to the history of sculpture in that sense but you know as we've mentioned it's 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 an innovation that's been for the most part, overlooked. So that's one way Asawa's work should challenge and does challenge our old understanding of 20th century art history. Another is seriality. We think of seriality as as, as coming in in the early 1960s, again, with the big male minimalists. But Asawa's doing it in the 40s. It is not just in the forms, but it's in the way she works. It's in how she makes her sculptures. Was she intentionally, consciously interested in the serial 
and where did she get it? The question of seriality is an interesting one. I wish I could have gone into the archives and have heard her speak about this. That would have been such a good way to, to learn more about it. But she's interestingly reticent when it comes to the question of repetition and seriality. And the only answer she ever offers is the one that I've already mentioned, the sort of repetitive task, the work of the hand that she performed. But that, but that, if I can interrupt, that in itself is a significant difference from the modern modernist art narrative of where seriality comes from. You know, the, the seriality narrative is about the machine and mechanical production and and American prosperity in, in, in the 1960s. So by talking about Asawa's, you know, Asawa's interest in the hand and handmaking and seriality coming that way is a radically different idea and narrative. Absolutely, because it's very much sort of human and rural and sort of almost like um, anti-modern in, in many ways. So, and, and, and she, she was interested in it as a way of Achieving like how can you achieve difference through repetition was you know one of the one of the questions that she tried to answer over and over again in her 2D works and her sculptures and you can see that you know across a number of different pieces. So one of the places we first see that and there's one in your show is works she made at Black Mountain in in, in you know like late 48 or 49 featuring the Black Mountain College laundry stamp. Um, what, are, <laughs> what are those works and how did they come about? <laughs> yeah, those, those, are, uh, those are terrific works. They're sort of monotypes in that way, you know, because what she's taking is either a piece of paper or a recycled, sort of recycled newsprint. And she's pressing stamp onto paper in order to create these sort of meandering patterns. And the stamps either say BMC or double sheet, and they come from um, the work that she did in the laundry room. You know, as we know, a part of the Black Mountain ethos was to be sort of self-sustaining, and it was an impoverished school anyway, so everybody had to pitch in. So her job was to work in the laundry room, and to and she used these stamps to label different type of wash. So there's a, a stamp also that says double sheet. And so in the show, there's a there's a work with the double sheet stamp and a work with, with the BMC logo, if you can call it a logo. Yeah, it's and just like letters on a rubber, you know, cut letters. letters yeah. Exactly. And so it's just very, very simple materials. But that was sort of part of the credo, too. You know, how much how much can you accomplish with simple means and simple materials? And so she's sort of structured these compositions using these stamps in order to just study the visual effects that are produced through layering and through repetition. Yeah, they're, they're really gripping. We'll, we'll try to have one on manpodcast.com. So concurrently with when Asawa is making these, you know, what are now widely called or what we now call looped wire sculptures, and we'll get to some terminology and the vocabulary that this show is trying to define and establish later on. Asawa is making Paul Clay-like or Paul Clay-informed works on paper, which really kind of stand out as being different from almost everything she does. So right away, here in the late 40s, early 50s, we have Clay, we have Sheila, we have biomorphism, Europe, Europe, Europe. Why do you think she was so, why she was looking so much at Europe, so eagerly engaging Europe and not American artists or not Mexican artists, given that she'd, she'd been in Mexico and, and visited muralists there and such? What... Any idea what why, why what about Europe and European artists interested her so? I I can't help but wonder that it was her, you know, it was her work at Black Mountain that was really the first time she was thinking about art seriously. That she was thinking about herself as a working artist, and you know, her primary teacher was Albers. So I think a lot of those you know, early interests come out of working with him. And of course, sort of the Eurocentric approach and view informs his curriculum. And, you know, that's something that she also uses in, as a starting point. You know, one of the things that I thought about, maybe not enough, is we'll see where this question goes, <laughs> is that, you know, at least later in his career, when Albers is at Yale, he would frequently send artists and students who were women off to Annie, his wife, and I'm struck by how often in the Asawa story, he's 
engaged with her work and how she's engaged with him. And, you know, maybe in the Black Mountain years, he hadn't started sending women to his wife uh, the way he would later. You know, and it's funny with the saw what happened in reverse. She initially was was spending only one summer at Black Mountain and she wanted to study with Annie Albers. And the story is that she went to Annie Albers, tried to get into her class, and after Annie Albers heard that she was only going to be there for the summer, she said, oh, there's no way you can ever, you know, learn weaving in one summer. Go and talk to my husband, like, try to take his class. So it kind of went through reverse, and she's the one who, who sends the student onto, onto her husband. Let's move to the Tidewire sculptures, as they're called. These are, are sculptures that often but not always hang from above. They're a little more plant-like than the more biomorphic looped wire sculptures. Asawa starts making them in 1962 or so. What prompted them? In 1962, she develops this new method, and the impetus was a gift that she received from her friends, which was a plant they found in a desert. And they thought that she would enjoy drawing it. And she really struggled to capture its branching structure on paper and decided instead to deconstruct the plant's anatomy and wire, which is the material that she best understood and the material that she eventually made a lifelong commitment to. And sort of this led to this new body of work known as Tidewire Sculptures, which she made by gathering wire into bundles and then she would divide and tied strands into branching forms and she you know again uh, thinking about the importance of labor and the work of the hand in her work she was adamant that for this work she would only use her hand and a pair of pliers to cut the wire and so this is the the, the so-called tied wire sculptures which as you said Initially, they hang from the ceiling with wire extending in uh, one direction initially, but then in, they, the forms become more spherical. And then eventually she also moves them to the wall. And, you know, we also have those wall-mounted tied wire sculpture, sculptures in the show as well. Yeah, it's, it's, that's kind of where the work gets flatter or references flatness a, little, a lot more. Than, than in other work. So I totally get and totally buy the desert plant from Death Valley story. But but you also point out, or at least effectively point out, that the forms she was interested in with this Tidewire technique also had their roots in Black Mountain. Yes. The story goes that the dominant motif in Asawa's work are the spherical forms. But if you go back to you know, some of those early works on paper where she's stamping and creating sort of uh, difference through this repetition of the motif, you also see that she's equally interested in the more angular forms. And there's a painting in the show as well that is a series of blue triangles that unfold in different directions and create these undulating coiling patterns that sort of yield these branching forms. And so Again, it's it's not just the, the spherical motif that is important to Asawa, but there's also an interest in these more irregular, jagged forms that one sees kind of worked through in the Tidewire sculptures. One of the interesting things about Asawa's work is it, it, it's readily identifiable as an Asawa from, from you know, 100 yards, even though so much of it is so very different. And and one of the things that you all do with the catalog is to try to create a standardized vocabulary around Asawa's work so that art historians and art lovers have a way of referring to and differentiating between the, the pretty darn broad range of, of, of forms and types of work Asawa made in, in her career. So one of your categories, for soon-to-be obvious reasons, I think, is the electroplated sculptures. What what were they and how were they both related to and totally different <laughs> from what came before? So, you know, again, she's working with wire. She has this commitment to working with wire and taking wire through its paces. So she loops it, she ties it. And then in 1961-62, she adopts this electroplating method. And it's just another experiment that she runs with wire where she takes her 
tide wire sculptures, and she she submerges them in a sulfuric acid bath for two or three weeks. And as a result, the sculpture develops these knobbish, greenish, crusty growths that cover the work surfaces. And you can see she's experimenting with different gauges of wire, different soaking times and different forms. And yeah, it's just, again, another expression of wire, which, you know, over the course of her career, I think that was one of her big projects is to, you know, uncover different properties of this material. Unfortunately, you know, this experiment is kind of short lived because, you know, by 1965, she abandoned it, having discovered that it made her sculptures too brittle. But but a number have survived and and have survived thankfully yes and and they are in the show. We've been talking about Asawa and her love of working with her hands, but she did make works in cast bronze starting in the late nineteen sixties. Why did she migrate to cast bronze? What what prompted that migration? And what are some of the forms she explored through casting? Yeah, that's sort of the fourth body of work that she made in in wire and even though it's a cast bronze. So in the mid-1960s, she starts creating public sculptures in the Bay Area in San Francisco. And the first of those was a fountain she made in San Francisco's Ghirardelli Square. Her motif was the mermaid, and she struggled to construct the mermaid's tail in bronze. And so she had an idea that she could loop the tail in wire, and it would have a more sort of naturalistic appearance. And that wire then was cast in bronze, and she was intrigued by that material transformation. And as a result, she began casting other looped wire forms that she made specifically to explore this process. And so that's also what's in the show. And what's really fascinating is that even though it's cast bronze, you can still see the the loops of the wire and also the structure of the wire itself. And even though, again, it's bronze, it's permeable. So it's really fascinating to see this experiment that juxtaposes the delicate wire with sort of the dense properties of the bronze. We've referred a number of times to how Asawa has made her work. Where did she make her work? Did she have a studio? Where was her studio? And why was the place she made her work so important, even fundamental to her? Yeah, it it certainly was fundamental. She made work in the home, in her home, a home where she raised six of her children. And in in working on the show, I met her children who just remember her their mother always working on these sculptures. They said they didn't appreciate at the time just how much she was able to accomplish. But just looking back, they themselves are astonished how, you know, prolific she was and how productive, you know, obviously both as a mother and as an artist, but being in the home and working in a home was really fundamental, as you say, to her, because it, it, it both enabled her to be a wife, uh, a mother and an artist. And she continually identified herself by, you know, in that way, you know, all those three identities were integral and important to her. And I think that comes a little bit out of sort of the Black Mountain idea that art and life are always entwined and inseparable. But she also going back to this idea of work as a guiding principle, she really wanted to make work to be an artist in front of her children as a way of teaching them a work ethic, as a way of really making visible how important a commitment to something was and it it needed to be toward leading a fulfilled life. So there's a number of wonderful photographs, many taken by her friend and an amazing photographer, Imogen Cunningham, that show her you know, amid, you know, her children sort of working and and making some of these looped wires forms while also being a mother. So it just sort of presents another view of the artist than we're, we're accustomed to. More Imogen Cunningham in a moment. But before we do, you talked earlier about Asawa's, uh, you know, what she learned from growing up on a farm and working and working with her hands. She even engages her children in art making in that 
they coil wire for her, right? Mm -hmm. They coil wire for her. They help her wash these sculptures. She really, she really believed in putting children to work. You know, she worked and felt that it was, you know, foundational to, to her as a, as a, as living a fulfilled life. And so, yeah, they were put to work. They were also surrounded by these sculptures in their everyday, you know, her work was not her home was not only her studio, her home was also her exhibition space. So art was a part and parcel of this, of this family's, you know, everyday life. Imogen Cunningham took a lot of pictures of Asawa. How important have those Cunningham pictures be to not just how we think of Asawa and the work, but to what we know about Asawa and the work. Yeah, I mean, both those things are true. You know, they're they're incredible documents of of the way in which she made the work, the way in which she presented the work. They're also just a little bit problematic as well, because in a number of photographs, she does capture Asawa as she really was, you know, sort of in simple dress, committed to her work, committed to her family. But there are a number of photographs where she's art directing Asawa and she's, you know, asked her to put lipstick on or, you know, where she's acting a little bit more glamorous. And so it's a having learned more about the artist, I know that those feel stage and a little bit antithetical to, to Asawa's true personality, but it's just an extraordinary trove of material that, you know, I and others have used to kind of look back and understand more about her life and work. And, and how the kids and others interacted, even how Asawa interacted with her own work. Absolutely. Yeah. And how, you know, how she came to really understand her work relative to her family life and vice versa. As to the point about Cunningham stylizing or styling, really, Asawa, for what it's worth, you know, that's what Cunningham did with objects in her in her in her work. I mean, she 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 stylized objects often in her work. And here she's styling, styling and stylizing a human. But it is to 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 a good extent consistent with how Cunningham her, her herself made her own work. Mm -hmm. Yes, and what's what's really interesting is you know there's there's a number of these really wonderful photographs that Imogen Cunningham took of Asawa and her family and her children, but it's it, she tried to dissuade Asawa from having more children, which she continued to, you know, she continued to have more and more. So the dynamic between those two women is so interesting and their respective vision of, you know, uh, what you need to do and what you need to surround yourself with to be productive and to be a great artist. There was one other thing I wanted to talk about in terms of Asawa's work that I, I haven't done a good job of steering us toward. So the, the, the Tidewire sculptures are, are visually static often as are the kind of multi-lobed hanging coiled wire forms. I mean, obviously they can, they can move in a breeze or whatever, but in terms of, but, but Asawa also made a lot of work that suggested movement, which is another one of those things we don't think of as being in the American post-war modernist tradition. Some of these were conical. Some of these are a form with, with, within a form coiled wire within coiled wire. Was she interested in, in, in this suggestion of movement, or is it just there in the work? No, she definitely was interested in, in the suggestion of movement. You can see it right away from, from the very beginning when she's making, you know, collages and drawings at Black Mountain College. You know, there is, it's always implied movement, and it's movement, you know, obviously, and the rhythm. She took a class with Merce Cunningham, and one of the first times she creates those undulating forms comes right out of that experience, and she calls it her dancer. And if you can picture it, it's sort of a form with where the dancer's arms are stretched and are joined above the head, sort of forming kind of an oval teardrop shape. This is a work on paper, yeah. Yeah, it's a work. It's a work on paper. It's actually a little painting. To clarify, and it's it's sort of this hourglass form with the bottom and the top joined. So it's almost like a figure eight. And yeah, it comes out of that interest in movement and motion and dance. And it's something that, that continues to be a lifelong preoccupation in her forms, especially the, 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 the multi-loped works where you have one form coming out of another 
It, it certainly is a, a longstanding preoccupation that she rehearses and improvises over and over again. I mean, it's another way in which her work defies the narrative that's been built up about post-war American art and, and, and how static it is. Because, I mean, so the, 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 the oil on paper you referenced is about seven by five and a half inches. We'll have an image, I think, on manpodcast.com. It also kind of plays with that biomorphic shape that Asa was, was interested in in those years. But she stays interested in movement for 30 years, even references things like like uh, music and trumpets and, 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 and making sound from a trumpet. Do you think her interest in movement stays where it was in the late forties or, or does it evolve? And then after that, I have a question back in the photographs. Yeah, I think, you know, she's the kind of artist, you know, to me that works with more of a narrow subset of formal concerns, issues, and questions, and then she rehearses them and iterates them over and over again, and they manifest themselves in different ways, in different permutations, but they're always pertaining to this idea of transparency, density, weight, volume, movement, rhythm, and, you know, I think she just expresses them in different ways through these different material transformations of wire, but I think they do kind of cycle in and out, but remain pretty constant throughout her six-decade-long career. So one of the ways that we get how we think about Asawa's work is from photographs, Cunningham's and others that we talked about a moment ago. We see people around them, you know, living their life around them, Asawa's family. We see Asawa kind of inside one of them. We see Asawa wearing one of her sculptures on her head and, and kind of laughing about it. I guess in conclusion, how important do you think photography has been to how we think about Asawa's work? And, and how do you feel about that? Is that a good thing, a bad thing, a neutral thing? Yeah. I mean, as with anything, there's, there's the good and the bad, you know, again, the, on the plus side, it's a, it's a wonderful glimpse into how she worked, how she lived with these sculptures, how these sculptures occupied her home and how they informed her family life. You know, and they've been tremendously important in constructing an identity for this artist that many of us have been unfamiliar with up until recently. But, you know, there's a there's a way in which, you know, images are just a construction of 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 one's identity. And I think we all have to be just collectively you know, critical and careful when when looking at those for, you know, the missing pieces that still need to be put together and telling a narrative of this really important artist. Tamara Schenkenberg, thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. American photographer Paul Sapoya's work challenges conventions in the genres of self-portraiture and the nude. On October 13th, hear him talk about the relationship between artist and subject and discuss representation, nudity, and intimacy with New Yorker critic Hilton Alls. Get tickets and learn more about this free event at getty.edu 360. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum that believes in the power of direct experiences with art. This fall, the Pulitzer presents Ruth Asawa, Life's Work, a career-spanning exhibition focused on Ruth Asawa's evolving artistic practice and ceaseless experimentation with wire. Bringing together more than 60 sculptures, including looped wire, tied wire, electroplated, and cast works, as well as several drawings and collages dating back to her formative years at Black Mountain College, this exhibition sheds light on Asawa's highly distinctive vision, which she achieved with a stunning deftness of hand and economy of means. Ruth Asawa Life's Work is on view through February 16th, 2019. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. On view through December 30th at the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University, Micheline Thomas, I Can't See You Without Me, explores the artist's ongoing dialogue with authorship, identity, desire, and the historically charged relationship between artist and muse. Each of the Wex's four galleries is devoted to one of the most significant muses in Thomas's career, including the artist herself. Among the more than 50 works presented are her signature rhinestone-encrusted paintings, as well as collage, sculptures, installations, and a new multi-channel video collaboration with Grammy-winning artist Terry Lynn Carrington, 
created with support from a WEX Artist Residency Award. Don't miss the chance to see one of the season's most anticipated exhibitions at its only venue. For more information, go to wexarts.org. Often referred to as America's Jewel Box, the Kimball Art Museum is celebrated around the globe for its iconic architecture and collection of masterpieces. Important paintings by Duccio, Fra Angelico, Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Poussin, Velasquez, Monet, Picasso, and Matisse, as well as international antiquities, shine in the pearly light of the Louis Kahn Design Galleries. A second building, designed by famed architect Renzo Piano, opened in 2013 and provides space for special exhibitions, dedicated classrooms, and an auditorium with excellent acoustics for music. Visit KimballArt.org for more information. Welcome back. My next guest, Angela Fraley, is included in The Unheroic Act, Representations of Rape in Contemporary Women's Art in the U.S. at the Sheba Gallery at John Jay College in New York. The exhibition includes artists such as Kara Walker, Yoko Ono, Senga Nangudi, and Suzanne Lacey, and was curated by Monica Fabjanska. It's on view through November 2nd. This coming week, on Wednesday, October 3rd, the Shiva will host an evening symposium related to the exhibition. We'll have a link to it on manpodcast.com. The lineup's pretty great. Fraley is a printer and sculptor whose work engages issues of desire and power. Her work's in the collections of the Kemper Art Museum in Kansas City and the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Angela Fraley, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much for having me. As I mentioned in the introduction, we're talking on the occasion of your inclusion in an exhibition with a very specific title, The Unheroic Act, Representations of Rape in Contemporary Women's Art in the United States. I suspect that more than a few women that the exhibition's curator approach thought it was too specific. Why did you say yes? Well, it's a really important topic and one that kind of gets swept under the rug again and again and again. And I think she was coming at it from a very distinct and interesting point of view. She's talking specifically not about the subject matter, but about the iconography and the kind of ripples and quakes that come from an act like this that happens to one in four women. So what I thought was really interesting about Monica's take on creating this exhibition is not only is it intergenerational, she has artists who have been working since the 70s to an artist a few years out of undergrad. And the kind of variations on the theme is, is really fascinating and nuanced. I think the other interesting aspect that she brought to this exhibition was, you know, where this subject matter can be found, the ways in which men have kind of often represented it, and the ways in which women would kind of come at it with a completely different point of view, and one that's much more intimate and personal. Yeah, I just found it really interesting that that I that I knew I was in safe hands with her as a curator, that I knew that she would bring a very interesting and new perspective to the subject, to the material, is what really kind of made me say yes. The work of yours that's in the show, which is titled Lone Lily Loomed into Bone, a 2011 sculpture. When you made it, were you thinking of it as addressing rape or, or, or was that pointed out to you or was it or did someone else put the work into that context for you? I knew that I was making work in reference to my mother and the kind of rape that I'm talking about is one that happens over a long period of time and is related to a really traumatic upbringing. In this artwork, it's about 17 by 13 by 10 inches. It hangs on the wall. My mother here is represented in the form of a long blonde wig. She had long blonde hair throughout her whole life. She still does, actually. And it kind of pools or puddles onto a small platform. Embedded in the wig are thistles and porcelain thistles. And I think I was thinking about it as kind of a thorny flowering. My mother was kind of violently, sexually, and emotionally abused throughout her entire childhood by members of her family. And I was thinking about how to gift her a space where she could be released from those burdens and kind of have a space where she would somehow escape fear and that kind of sense of something always looming. And so I wanted to, like, I was thinking a lot about female ritual and I was thinking about kind of like whiling away the hours in a field of flowers 
but here the flowers, though they have kind of barbs attached to them as a, a form of protection, they're also, they're kind of sprouting from the form or they're kind of emerging from this form. So there's this notion of like her coming of age tale. She never got to have that moment of finding her own way into a kind of pleasant sexual experience. It's always been wrought or fettered with a kind of pain attached to it, if that makes sense. We'll have images of the work on manpodcast.com, of course. I should add one thing about it. That is, you don't see a figure's face in the sculpture. It is as if the viewer is looking at someone from behind or or as if the face is not visible because hair has been combed forward. You have made a number of, of drawings, works on paper, of women's heads from behind or completely obscured by by locks, by hair. Are those drawings related to this sculpture? Well, most recently I've been working with institutions and looking for dormant narratives of female characters throughout history. It's almost site-specific in nature in doing that. And I'm, I guess for a long time I've made paintings in response to the stories that I've heard, kind of bringing attention to narratives that perhaps don't get discussed nearly as often as they could or should just to bring awareness to certain, you know, different power dynamics that I would like to see become more equitable. But I've been thinking a lot more lately about the stories that I want told. And so I've been thinking about going into art history, history itself, and kind of sussing out and resuscitating stories that could kind of be points of celebration. You know, like, for instance, I'm working with the Edward Hopper house right now where I didn't know this, but Edward Hopper's wife, Joan Nivison Hopper, was an artist in her own right. And she was actually far more well known than he was when when they married, when they were both in their early 40s. And without her, we probably wouldn't have Hopper in the way that we would. She got him a show at the Brooklyn Museum. She was a kind of staunch record keeper of his works. She kind of sparked him to life a lot of times. And she was his muse. She was the only model for him. I'm getting a little off track here, but it's just to say that I... I'm really interested in kind of drawing out some of these stories that have kind of dwindled in the in art history. And so the the backs of heads, that was one of the first installations I ever did was at the Vanderbilt Mansion Museum in Hyde Park, New York, where I was trying to find out anything I could about the women that had either lived or worked in the home. And it became kind of clear very early on that there was little record keeping of any of the women's lives women just weren't recorded in the same way at that time. And the Vanderbilts, those particular Vanderbilts were notoriously kind of private. So I made a body of work in response to that, about that kind of sense of anonymity, about how that lack of access would always be a stumbling block or a challenge to kind of learn about these, these characters. So, so it's a recurring theme because I think it kind of speaks volumes to what we can never know about some of these stories that I'm interested in. And it also kind of, there's a democratizing quality to it. So no matter where you were in terms of your wealth or lack thereof, there's still this, like, you're still a second class citizen. You still have a lack of rights. You mentioned your painting practice earlier and and how it's frequently engaged art history and figuration and updated it and, you know, air quotes, fixed it. So there's an enormous history of rape in European painting, perhaps most famously in the Rape of Europa myth that painter after painter ran to and ran to, no doubt, because the male collectors found it a sexy thing to have on their walls. I know you've been interested in that history and in Rape of Europa paintings. Other than that they existed, was there something about the paintings themselves rather than just the myth. Some of the, was there a way about the way the paintings addressed the myth that drew your attention to to one or more of them? They're fraught, right? Because there's there's such a love of luscious paint and technical kind of virtuoso that I'm so fascinated by. But then we have this history of the 1970s feminism that showcases the kind of passive quality of a number of these female figures that populate the painting. So I've always had this kind of tension where how do you love something for what it appears to be and hate it so much for what it appears to mean? And so I think what I'm working at right now is a way to mend that tension for myself personally, but also to kind of 
also ask the question, can we look at these women as if they were thinking beings? Can we look at them as somewhat subversive? Can we look at them as figures that have a certain amount of agency? Uh, clearly they don't. A lot of the women that were posing for these paintings are working class figures or servants or mistresses of the painters themselves. But you know, it's a question I'm asking. There's a long lineage of women being silenced throughout history and ways in which that's been systemically so. There's this broadsheet from Marina Warner's text from the Beast of the Blonde that from the 1600s is was passed about and it locates all these places where women should not be allowed to gather. They shouldn't be able to get together at the birthing bed and they shouldn't be able to get together at the bakery because a brawl might break out. And the ways in which women's words have also been denigrated over time, thinking about, you know, old wives tales, it's just an old wives tale, or it's just gossip. I've been trying to reimagine these art historical images as gathering points where women might actually share that information, and it might be viewed as a kind of potential for progress. You know, the rape of Europa paintings are not uniform, right? I mean, so in the in the myth, you know, the bowl you know, carries Europa into the sea. So there's often coastline, some reference to water, sometimes like in the Pierre Bernard 1919 version, there's a reference to beach. But many of them, not all of them, try to mash up the pastoral with the rape scene with the ocean, which when you say it out loud, sounds really weird, but painters somehow made it work, right? So often in, in the Europa story or in Europa paintings, there is a field, flowers, you know, some reference to, to spring and flowering for obvious metaphorical reasons. Were you thinking through or interested in that painting history when you made Lone Lily and included thistles and and, and, and the porcelain thistles, which also if you aren't thinking thistles, do kind of resemble seashells. Mm, no, I wasn't thinking about it that at all, but I do like the reference. I think of, like, I was thinking about the Rape of Europa paintings when I was making paintings that kind of cobbled figures from those spaces. But when I was making Lonely Loomed into Bone, I was actually living in Roswell, in the artisan residence there, Roswell, New Mexico. And the landscape there is incredible. It's, it's, so bereft of any like you know it it seems like anything that survives like it's so hardy and tough but yet it's rather barren because the weather is so extreme it's either freezing or it's insanely hot and so I loved that as a metaphor this kind of like all of the foliage there has such character it's so kind of quirky and rugged and tough and so you know, from my many walks kind of through that landscape, kind of finding those and using that as a metaphor was important. You know, I should mention that the thistles, there are some that are kind of left dried and kind of lovingly woven into the hair. They're kind of resembling, it's reminiscent of a constellation of stars or a braided ornament. And some of them are porcelain cast. So they've been ossified or petrified. They've been kind of turned into a stony substance. Yeah, which which was the reference I was trying to make. Yeah, and so instead of, I was thinking more like a Medusa seeing parts of herself or like porcelain in and of itself is a really interesting material. It It's extremely delicate, but it's also really durable. So it's something you could find in laboratories or in like any bathroom, you know, in any home in America or like a finest tableware of kings and queens, right? So I loved this kind of working class slash aspirational quality of the material itself. It's also something that if you hold to the light, it's somewhat translucent. So I liked that. I liked all of that kind of language around the material. And then the piece itself, it's kind of shedding these thistles or the thistles are kind of sprouting. So they're either kind of I guess it's the question of like what happens after trauma, like how, like, can your body make something new, something beautiful of this kind of ugliness that kind of penetrated it? That was the question, like something that I, I really wanted to, and that I've, like I mentioned in the conversations with Monica, that I am so resistant to see women as victims in any way. 
And I think that that's actually a clear message that's missing from the Me Too movement right now. I think women get it fully, that it's not about victimhood in any way. It's about just showcasing the kind of obstacles that exist, just trying to navigate through a regular day in your life. Do you think that idea exists in other, you know, in your paintings? I was going to say other of your paintings, but we're talking about a sculpture. Do you think that idea exists in your paintings? Yes, absolutely. I think my earlier work, you'll notice that all of the figures have a kind of apathetic kind of, they go into this space of, you know, like you can't really tell when you're looking at those paintings if the figure is a victim or a volunteer. And I really, that's a very conscious decision. In the later work, it's very much about restoring agency to what we've previously conceived as victimhood of passive female beautiful bodies. So I didn't realize that that's what I've been doing all along until I had these conversations, but it's been, it's opened up things quite a bit in my studio right now. (laughs) So Angela Fraley, thanks so much. Oh, thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.